0: Um, If you were here last week, or if this is your first time here, we're in the middle of a series that we've entitled Vanity, where we are exploring God's plans and purpose for our lives as we kind of go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, as we said last week, Ecclesiastes is a bit of an unusual kind of anomaly when it comes to books of the Bible. It's kind of an autobiography of sorts. It's written by a man by the name of King Solomon. He was the fourth king of Israel. And Solomon is now looking back over his life, um, trying to answer a very specific question, what... Is the meaning of life? And that is a question that all of us probably at one time or another have probably asked ourselves. What is the true meaning of life? And Solomon, because he was king of Israel, he had many riches at his disposal, as you can probably imagine. And so Solomon decided that he was gonna try and test specifically all these different areas to try and figure out could this bring meaning and purpose to my life? And so Solomon sets out to try and find purpose in parties. And when partying fails, he goes and then looks to alcohol. And when alcohol fails, Solomon turns his attention to architecture and to work. And that ultimately fails as well. So he looks to nature, and nature he could find no purpose. And then he turns his attention to things like money, like power, like sex, sexual fulfillment. And when Solomon tries all these things, ultimately he looks back on every detail, every one of these things, and he concludes that it was all meaningless, like chasing the wind. It's like smoke that at one point may seem solid, but if you try to grab onto it, it goes right through your fingers. And Solomon concludes that all these things are like chasing the wind, that they may provide in a moment temporary satisfaction, but they didn't give his soul and his heart the craving that it so deeply desired. And we saw last week that in the book of John, Jesus knew this about us as human beings, that we would search out answers in different places. And he said that the only place you're going to find fulfillment in this life is in me, that I am the living water and that I satisfy your heart and soul and everything that you thirst for. And so Solomon, after getting done um, kind of searching for meaning in all these different areas in the first couple chapters of Ecclesiastes, he now begins to turn his attention as you're reading through the book and begins to provide some social commentary on a variety of different issues that he witnesses and sees happening in his kingdom. He discusses things like work, things related to marriage, things related to politics, and as I'm reading through this book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm reading what Solomon has to say, his commentary on these different issues, it reminds me of uh, a friend of mine by the name of Aaron. And you can see on the screen, uh, here is Aaron. Aaron is not the guy in the costume. Um, he's the guy with, uh, on the far left there, my, my right, your left. I think I got that right. Um, and he is uh, my best friend of 10 years. Aaron has been a friend of mine for 10 years. He's that ride-or-die buddy, right? We all have those friends that stick with us through thick or thin. Aaron has been with me through the highs and lows of life. And one of the things that I admire so deeply about Aaron is that he is um, somebody that is able to speak his mind. Aaron is the kind of guy who will tell me when I'm acting like an idiot, which happens quite frequently. He's that kind of friend. Aaron also is the kind of guy who will speak his mind on issues without any type of fear or filter of what other people may think. How many know that kind of person, know somebody like that in your life or have come across somebody like that in your life? Yeah, Aaron's that guy. As I often um, talk about Aaron and I try to describe Aaron to people, I'll tell them that Aaron is probably the most authentic person that I've ever met. When you see Aaron, what you get is what you see. He is authentic and real. And what reminds me of Aaron and King Solomon is that both of them have the ability to speak very bluntly about issues in life. They often will voice things that many of us are thinking but may not have the courage to actually say. And this is especially true when we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and begin to read Solomon's words and commentary on some of the injustice and suffering that he was experiencing in his kingdom. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, you'll see we've got page number 473 there. If you've got your Bible, you can turn there and the Bible's under your seats, or certainly feel free to read it off the screen. He says, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power is Was on the side of the oppressors. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born to see the evil that is done under the sun. So, what we have here is Solomon from his palace, his throne, looking out over his kingdom, and he's witnessing injustice and suffering that is happening all around him. And he sees that there is nobody stepping up to provide comfort to those that are hurting. And so in the void of that justice, Solomon declares that it's better off if people were dead or hadn't been born at all. Now, that's pretty blunt, right? That's pretty blunt and also kind of borderline cruel to say something like that. I mean, could you guys imagine, just for a moment, stretch your imagination to imagine if we had a political leader who tweeted things like, oh, we may not need to stretch our imagination that far, but if there was somebody who said something like that, could you imagine the response, the outrage that would be on social media if, we said, if somebody said it's better off if people were dead or had not been born at all? Social justice warriors across the internet would have a field day with comments like that. And yet the crazy part about Solomon's comment about the suffering and injustice he's witnessing happening in his kingdom is that if there was one person in the entirety of Israel who had the ability to do something about this suffering, it was King Solomon, right? I mean, this guy, after all, he is king of Israel, We'd already talked last week, and we mentioned again this week, King Solomon had more riches at his disposal than any person alive at his time, and quite possibly any person throughout the entirety of history. This dude was rich. He had more resources and political capital to make a difference than anyone else in Israel. And yet, when he sees the suffering, the most he can do is say people are better off if they were dead or if they had never been born imagine what that would have been like. I mean, he does nothing in the midst of this suffering and oppression that he witnesses. And while it's easy for me personally, as I'm reading through Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 4, I started to get angry. And it's easy in that moment to start to point the finger at King Solomon and say, man, what, what a jerk, what a hypocrite. And yet the truth is that I am not all that different than King Solomon. The truth is, if even I'm honest in this moment, there are times when I will choose to look the other direction when I encounter injustice and suffering in the world. My lack of action is sometimes an intentional decision, sometimes it's a subconscious decision, but it's always based on barriers that prevent me from acting on behalf of those who are hurting. Now, when I say barriers, I mean anything that stops us from helping those who are hurting. Personally, one of the biggest barriers that I encounter to jumping in when I witness injustice or suffering in the world is the fear of the unknown. I don't know if any of you else can sympathize that or would understand that, but uh, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I grew up in Arvada, Colorado for a vast majority of my life. And for those who are unfamiliar with Arvada, it's a suburb of Denver, and it's a particularly white and affluent suburb. Now, not that there's anything wrong with that, but where I grew up, there was no su- poverty was something that was hidden. Suffering was something that was hidden in my community. You had to go out and search for it to actually be able to find it. Now, fast forward about 20 years later, three and a half years ago, when Don and I moved to Durham, North Carolina, and suddenly suffering and poverty was something that would jump up and slap you in the face if you weren't looking. It was right front and center everywhere you went. And because I had never experienced racial diversity, socioeconomic diversity like that, I have to confess to you this morning that it made me uncomfortable when I saw it. It created a feeling of unknown. And that barrier of fear I oftentimes ended up using as an excuse to do something to help the very people that were hurting in front of me. It's easy to be outraged when we see King Solomon look at the suffering in the world that was happening around him, but the truth is, I'm King Solomon. I do that very often in my own life. And sometimes I can choose to look the other way when I encounter suffering and injustice in my world, but I bet if we're all honest today, if we all were able to be honest in this moment, I bet there were times that we could all pinpoint in our lives where we've maybe done the same thing where we've encountered suffering and we've chosen to do nothing. For whatever reason, we've looked the other direction, we haven't acted when it was within our power to do so. And I bet even more so, if we were honest about that, we could probably point to very specific barriers that prevented us from action. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and apologist, identifies some of the most common barriers, or the most common barrier that people would encounter when it comes to standing against just injustice, do you guys know what that barrier is? Tim Keller says it's sacrifice. For anyone who makes the decision to stand against injustice or stand up for the needs of the oppressed or marginalized people groups, it will always require of us sacrifice. And Tim Keller takes this idea of sacrifice and he says, when it comes to sacrifice, you're going to experience it in three different ways, physical, mental, and emotional. Physical, because it will require us to physically be engaged with those who are less fortunate. And that is something that is really hard for us to come to grips with in our American culture, right? Because we're all so busy. We're pulled in so many different directions all the time. I've got school, I've got work, I've got friends, I've got family. All these things that are pulling us in different directions. And it's not that any of those things are necessarily evil in and of themselves, but when it comes to having to help people that are in need, it's a difficult jump to sacrifice our time to be able to help those that are hurting in need of our assistance. So its uh, sacrifice is physical. It's also mental, Tim Keller says, because it requires us to abandon our narrow political viewpoints about what fighting against injustice and suffering actually means. Now, many of us won't have to think very hardly about this, right? We live in a very politically charged culture. You don't have to go turn on the TV for very long to experience that, right? Depending on which news source you come from, it's all very politically charged. And in this culture, we will oftentimes ferociously defend both our standards and ideals regarding what true justice or what we believe true justice looks like or means, like, means in our culture. For example, someone with a utilitarian worldview might look at justice as something that is for the common good. Somebody who comes from a more liberal perspective may see justice as something that belongs and wants to champion the rights of the individual where someone who comes from a more conservative background may emphasize morality. And each of those views of justice have their strengths and their weaknesses, but when we allow our political affiliations to create barriers, they can bind us and blind us to other ways of bringing about justice in our world. As an example, I was listening to a political talk show host a few uh, weeks ago, and I tried to expand and listen to a variety of different ideas and opinions about politics. And this one particular radio host said, the arguments on this show are irrefutable and everybody else is wrong. (laughs) It kind of summarizes our view of politics in America these days. And when we take that view, it limits our ability to see justice from other perspectives. So justice is also a mental sacrifice. justice is also an emotional sacrifice. Keller says that caring for others and, um, in situations that are unfamiliar or unknown can oftentimes be uncomfortable, especially in situations where we're dealing with people who seem unlovable. I can testify to that one. And I think to varying degrees, all of us here at one point or another can identify with that barrier of Sacrifice. I think everyone can uh, uh, think of a time in your life when maybe the sacrifice was too high, the cost was too much when it came to being able to help others. The good news is, we are not the first people in the history of the world to, have, with, to wrestle with our response to injustice Clearly, when we look at King Solomon, he was wrestling with it too. And his blunt response to injustice is going to help highlight how God intends us to respond when we encounter suffering in our world. And so, if you'll have your Bibles again, um, open again to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and I want us to look specifically at one of the statements that Solomon makes. He says that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. It's an interesting phrase in the original Hebrew as you look at it. Most biblical commentators will look at this statement that Solomon is making and they will actually favor the literal translation of Solomon's words, meaning that the dead, the people who are in the ground buried, are better off than the people who are living. However, there's also room for a figurative translation of this verse, which could imply that there are the dead who are not yet dead the living dead, so to speak. People who are biologically alive on the outside, but their souls are dead because they've hardened their hearts and calloused their hearts to the cries of the oppressed. In other words, Solomon is talking about zombies, Christian <laughs> zombies. And that would explain, as you look at Solomon looking out upon his kingdom and seeing nobody there to comfort them, it would explain the moral ambivalence that is encountered in his culture. The reason why nobody is stepping up to help the needs of those who are around them because the people were cold and dead inside their hearts to the people who were suffering. They chose to do nothing because they had closed their hearts off to those who were hurting. And it's interesting that as Solomon is talking about this, this isn't the only place in scripture that it was dealing with a zombie infestation. In fact, the early church was dealing with a similar infestation. And in the book of James, you can turn there, page 855 in your notes, and as you, in your Bibles, and as you turn there, um, I'd like to give you a little bit of historical context while you get there. James is actually the first, believed to be the first book of the Bible written in the New Testament, in the epistles, and it was believed to be written between 44 and 48 A.D. It was written to Jewish Christians who were just become, become believers in Christ, and for the first time, these Jewish Christians were experiencing a relationship with God. That was based on faith and not on works alone. In other words, they were learning about the exhilaration of freedom from works based righteousness. What does that mean? The Jewish community during Jesus' day and centuries leading up to that grew up that in order to be right with God, I had to obey a certain number of laws. 613 laws, to be exact, that governed everything from religious worship to everyday life. And if I obeyed these laws, God was happy with me. And if I failed to obey these laws, I could suffer judgment, and God was angry at me. And so that's how they knew and understood their relationship with God. And for the first time, they're discovering that God loves you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so they're experiencing this freedom of faith and salvation from works. And some of these Jewish Christians start to take this belief to the extreme. And they begin to actually um, thinking that their works don't matter at all. And much like Solomon's day, the needs of the poor begin to go unmet. There are people that are not acting and, and doing on behalf of the poor And so James is writing to these Jewish Christians, and in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, he says this, "'What is good, my brothers and sisters, uh, "'or what good is it, my brothers and sisters, "'if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? "'Can such faith save them? "'Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. "'If one of you goes to them and says, "'Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, "'but does nothing about their physical needs,' What good is it? In the same way, faith itself is not accompanied by actions, it's dead. So for James, as he's looking out and seeing these Jewish Christians and their response to people who are hurting, or their lack of response to people who are hurting, he finds that it is incompatible to have Christian zombies in the Christian faith. He genuinely understood that it was impossible for us to have faith that was not accompanied by good works. And so where does James get this idea that faith in Christ must be accompanied with good works? Well, James himself was a Jewish believer. He was actually Jesus' brother. And James understood the symbiotic relationship between faith and good works that was actually woven throughout the entirety of Scripture. For example, let me share some verses that James might have been familiar with. In Psalms 82.3, It says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. In Psalms 106.3, when justice is done, or blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. In Proverbs 21.15, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless and please the widow's cause. In Isaiah 61.8, For I am the Lord, I love justice, I hate robbery and wrongdoing." And Hosea twelve, six, or Amos five, twenty-four, sorry, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Hosea twelve, six, but you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. In Micah six, eight it says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to do but justice and to love kindness and walk humbly before your God. Jesus himself said to the religious leaders of his day, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Let me ask you guys, are you beginning to sense a pattern in what James is saying and what the Bible is talking about in terms of faith and justice? Because, see, James understood that God's very character was justice. God could not be unjust. James also understood that Jesus, by his mission and values, pursued justice. He cared for the oppressed and the marginalized in his culture. He looked out for those who were most often overlooked. And James also understood that as Christ followers, we cannot separate our faith from good works. We cannot say that we are following Christ and yet not have a faith that is accompanied with good works. A living faith in Christ moves us to action when we encounter injustice and suffering in our world. So, what does that mean? Does that mean that we're saved by grace? Does that mean that we're saved by works? Well, A lot of people have had that question throughout history as they've read the book of James, and the truth is is that James is saying that we are saved by faith in Jesus alone. We receive eternal life through professing and believing in in the authority and the lordship of Jesus, but James is merely clarifying the kind of faith that saves. Our faith is a living faith accompanied by good works. It's not a dead faith. The best way to think about this is like an apple tree. When you think about an apple tree, where does the life in the apple tree come from? It's not from the apples, is it? No, it's from the roots. It's in the trunk, in the tree, in the branches. But an apple tree will produce fruit in season, even though that fruit is not the life of the tree. It's a byproduct of the life that is in the tree. And that is also true of our faith. It is Jesus alone who saves us. But a byproduct of that faith should be good works. It should be something that just naturally comes out of us. I love what Charles Spurgeon has to say about this. If you guys haven't recognized over these last two weeks, I'm a big Charles Spurgeon fan, but he says that a grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. Let me say that again. A grace that does not change my life will not save my soul. A living faith in Christ will move us to action when we encounter suffering and injustice in our world. And so James makes this statement and then he provides a example of the absurdity of what it would look like to be a faith a Christian who has faith in word alone and not in action. And he says in verse 15 and 16 in James chapter 2 Suppose a brother and sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? And again, much like Solomon's response to the suffering and oppression that he witnessed in his kingdom... It's easy to read this example that James is is giving in his book and look at that and say, man, what hypocrites would actually do that? They would say that they're Christians, see somebody who needs food and water, and yet just says, go in peace. But the truth is, when you look at that language of go in peace, it actually is the modern-day equivalent of something to the effect of, I'll be praying for you. Telling someone to go in peace or I'll be praying for you when it's within our power to do more to help somebody is not living faith. It's not helpful and oftentimes it's a lot more hurtful to that individual. I would suggest to us today that when we encounter suffering and oppression in our world, we need to be a people that offer less thoughts and prayers and simply do more to help those around us. Now, I want you to hear my heart on this for a moment because I know that can brustle some people inside when you hear less thoughts and prayers. I'm not dogging prayer. I believe absolutely in the power of prayer. We believe that prayer has the power to change from the physical or spiritual things that are happening in the physical. God embodies our prayers. It's why we ask you guys to fill out prayer cards every Sunday. We believe in the power of prayer. But I get it. Because there are times in our lives when we encounter tragedy, when we encounter suffering and oppression, when we don't know anything else other to say than I'll be praying for you. And sometimes that's all we can offer in those moments, and it's right and it's good. But my suggestion to you is that when we offer I'll be praying for you as a mere platitude to make us feel good about ourselves, like we're doing something when we're really not doing anything, we're missing the point of a living faith. And guys, I got to be honest that I am guilty of that is just as much as the next person. On Facebook, social media, wherever it is, I can't tell you the number of times that I've said, I'll be praying for you, brother and sister, to make myself feel better about what I'm doing when I'm not actually doing anything at all. Because oftentimes I leave that comment and I walk away and I don't pray for that person. Not only have I not offered help where and I have the ability to offer help, but I don't even pray for them. And I confess that and I understand that. I'm guilty of it just like anybody else. And so when we don't act, when it's within our power to do more, when we have the ability to offer our prayers or when we offer our prayers as a platitude, we're no different from the people in James' example. And James answers his own question when he says, what kind of, what good is that? What kind of faith is that? And he says, it's dead. It's a useless faith. There aren't Christian zombies that exist in God's economy. A living faith centered on Jesus will move us to action whenever we encounter suffering and injustice in our world, whether it's physical action, whether it's spiritual action of praying for people. A living faith moves us to action. Now, I understand there is a temptation when we hear a message like this, that we are going to run out and immediately go champion a cause, right? After all, a living faith moves us to action, Nick. You said it over and over again. I need to go out and join a cause. Where do I sign up? And there are no limit to the amount of causes that we can sign up for in our world today, right? I was going out and I was looking up some causes just in case you need some help. Uh, One such cause um, that I, I may recommend to you is called the Critter Connection. Critter Connection, and the Critter Connection in their byline and their uh, statements say that in a world where dogs and cats are known as pet royalty, other pets like guinea pigs are often left to fend for themselves. This is real, mind you. The Critter Connection started in 2004 to make sure that no guinea pig is left behind. Maybe the Critter Connection isn't for you. If not, there's also the Helping Hands Monkey Helpers, Similar to dogs, monkeys are known to make great service animals. Helping Hands Monkey Helpers for the Disabled, (coughs) Inc. has been training monkeys to help adults with spinal cord injuries and other mobility impairments since 1979. I, for one, have always dreamt of having a monkey butler in a tuxedo serving in my house. This cause may actually make that happen. If those two don't catch your fancy, perhaps there's the Tall Club International. This organization focuses on promoting causes that benefit the special needs of exceptionally tall people. Jared Cronin may be able to take advantage of this. Uh, they aim to help take kids to greater heights by providing scholarships for young men and women of a certain height. And then last but not least, there's the 501st Legion for anybody who's a Star Wars fan, you'll know that the 501st is an effort to promote interest in Star Wars. This volunteer organization, based on the baddies of the Republic, brings together um, costume enthusiasts who want to contribute to their community. So, as you can see, there are no limit to organizations that you can go out and serve. And in all seriousness, there are a lot of organizations that need help and need assistance. But before you run out the door this morning to go join a cause, before you run out this morning to go join a purpose, can I suggest to you that biblical justice doesn't begin with a cause, it begins first with Christ. Biblical justice and standing against injustice in our world doesn't begin with a cause, it begins with Christ. What do you mean? Well, as we said last week, causes like many of the other things that we can center our life on are temporary. By their very nature, they are temporary. And when we center the foundation of our faith on a specific cause and not on Jesus, we end up like King Solomon, just chasing the wind. After all, there are only so many guinea pigs in the world that we can actually help. And what happens when every one of those guinea pigs has found a home? What then? Our cause is temporary. And conversely, more serious causes like hunger are things that are going to exist in our world until Jesus returns. There will always be brokenness and hurt and, 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 and people that are in need in our world. And if we center our purpose on a sole cause, such as alleviating hunger, it may bring temporary purpose to our lives. But when that need is still unmet, when we lie on our dying beds, what happens to our souls then? Like Solomon, might we look back and say it was hollow and empty. The truth is also that when we chase after a cause as our primary source of fulfillment, it also, um, we're limited by the barriers that that cause may create. Every cause has barriers. Some are social, like money, like people, manpower, facilities. Some are personal, like we talked earlier, fear. But when we endeavor to make a cause the center of what we're pursuing, we're limited by our own power to overcome those barriers. I've set out after this. This is what I'm pursuing, so I'm limited by my own ability to overcome those barriers. In some cases, we may be able to be successful. In other cases, we can't and we're stopped. We can only champion so far. And the other thing with placing cause at the center of our purpose is that it unintentionally can cause us to put people in boxes. It can create an us-versus-them mentality. We label people who aren't interested in our cause as the enemy, and we see that all over the place today. You're not following what I want, so you're a bigot. You're not following what I'm trying to do, so you're a snowflake. And we intentionally or unintentionally sometimes label these people and put labels on people because they're not championing our cause and what we believe is correct. Causes, when we start with that, are temporary and can leave us feeling unfulfilled and hollow inside. But when we start with Christ at the center of what we're pursuing, when we start first with Jesus, we're pursuing something that has the ability to give eternal purpose to our lives. I'm no longer limited by a temporary cause. I'm pursuing what Jesus cares about and where Jesus is moving in this world I'm not limited by a particular outcome or set of outcomes. I'm centered on becoming more like Christ in everything that I do. I'm centered more on bringing Jesus' love, grace, and mercy, and justice to this world in everything that I do. And that, brothers and sisters, is a cause that will give you purpose and eternal meaning to your life unlike anything else in this world. When I place my center of pursuit of purpose I'm no longer also relying on my own ability. When I I center my purpose on Jesus, I'm no longer relying on my own ability. Because if Jesus has called me to do something, then the God of heaven and earth, who spoke entire universes into existence by his very words, can overcome any barrier that I may face. There is no barrier, no amount of money, no people power that God cannot overcome if he's called me to go and do something. It's one of the reasons that I love our senior pastor, Jason Montano. When you talk with Jason, Jason dreams big all the time. We're driving down the street. I'm asking God for that building. God's big enough. He can give that to us. If that's where he wants Mosaic to go, he can do that. There's no ask in Jason's vocabulary that is too big for his God. And when we center our purpose on Jesus, wherever Jesus is calling us, there is nothing that you can do or nothing that will come against you that is too big that your God can't overcome. Amen? Amen. The other thing, when we center our purpose solely on Jesus, is that it creates unity and not division. Because when we center our purpose on Jesus, we all start from the same place, right? We all start from this place that we are all broken and hurting individuals. We are all people that are desperately in need of a Savior. It's not an us versus them mentality. It's not this cause is more worthy than this cause. We are all in the same position in need of a Savior to redeem our lives. It levels the playing field so that everybody stands in the same position before God. We all need Jesus. So my suggestion for us today, then, is that if a living faith moves us to action when we encounter injustice and suffering, have you asked Jesus where he's inviting you to share his love, justice, and mercy in the world? Have you asked Jesus where he's inviting you? That's a big, bold question to ask the Lord that can sometimes be scary. I know six months ago, Don and I were sitting in our living room. God had just miraculously taken us out of a church that I was working at in Durham, North Carolina. And we had no idea of where we were going next. And we were challenged by a friend to ask, where is Jesus inviting you to go? And so Don and I grabbed each other by the hand and we prayed that prayer, Jesus, where are you taking us? And it was amazing as we began to step forward, door after door would close, door closed, door closed, door closed, closed, until finally Jesus revealed that he wanted us here in Wisconsin to be part of Mosaic Church, to be part of a movement of people that was seeking to ignite a radical movement of love that would transform a community in the world. Jesus was inviting us to come here. And it doesn't just stop with that movement for Don and I. Even as I've been contemplating this in my own life this week, I've been asking Jesus, now that we're here, where are you inviting us? Who are you inviting Don and I to go and to step and to help and to heal and to share your justice with the oppressed and the marginalized in the world? So I'm asking you this morning, church. I'm asking you, where is Jesus inviting you to go? Because there are no such things as Christian zombies in God's economy. And if we profess to have a living faith in Jesus, that faith will move us to action when we encounter injustice and suffering. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering